You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. All right, let's, uh, let's open our Bibles this morning. Whatever version of that you have, tablet or phone or old school, to John chapter 1. John's Gospel, first chapter. Last week, we began a, uh, a new series entitled The Incarnation, in which we are taking a, a, an in-depth look at the Incarnation through the month of December, the Incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Incarnation, as we uh, found out last week, literally means in-fleshing. And with respect to our topic, the in-fleshing of God, more specifically, the miracle of the eternal Son of God adding human nature and a human body to His divine nature by miraculous conception through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the miracle of all miracles. There is none greater than this. It is central to Christianity. In fact, all of Christianity hangs on the incarnation. If God does not become a man, there is no Christianity. No incarnation, no salvation. And we saw that last week in Philippians 2 where we learn how the incarnation happened. We learned that the Son of God did not let His divine nature keep Him from taking on human nature. Instead, He emptied Himself of the prerogative to function and to display His divine nature unless the Father willed it. And He did that so that He could take on human nature, become a servant, die on a cross to redeem us from our sins. It was an act of of infinite love and humility that fills us with the reality of God's love. You can't stay empty when you're thinking about the Incarnation. It fills you with the love of God. This week, we're going to take up another passage that is very well-known passage about the Incarnation like Philippians 2. Uh, It tells us how the Son of God became a man, but in a very, very unique way. And um, it's found in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we often call the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all begin with the humanity of Jesus Christ. John, on the other hand, begins with the deity of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin with like a point in history, if you will. They begin with a genealogy, or they, Mark begins with the preaching of John the Baptist. But John, John goes all the way back to eternity past to begin his explanation of, of Jesus Christ. And he does that really all the way through his Gospel. The emphasis is on Christ's deity. He says it right at the beginning here in the verses we're going to be looking at. Jesus Christ is God. And he says it at the end of his Gospel or near the end in John 20. These things I have written to you that you may know Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now we're going to be looking at the first three verses as well as the 14th verse, which actually completes the theme of the first three verses. And that theme is the Word. Let's begin in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Four points this morning from this passage. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh. First of all, the Word was in the beginning, or in the beginning was the Word, the text says. Two words there that need some explaining for us to really understand this a bit deeply, a bit deeper. The phrase, in the beginning, of course, that reminds you of what? Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what John is saying is, at that very moment when the universe came into existence, the Word was. The Word already existed. In other words, the Word did not come into existence like everything else in the universe. In fact, in verse 3, we're told that everything else in the universe came into existence because of the Word who created all things. So who is this Word that always existed? Well, the short answer to that and, uh, you know, I'm going to just spoil the whole thing here by saying the Word is a title for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And John gradually builds to that point over the next 13 verses in the first chapter here of John. If you just jump right to the end of the uh, explanation here, the Word is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is revealed with many titles or names, all of which describe something about His person. We know Him later on here in John as the Lamb of God. The Baptist introduces Him that way. He's the Lamb of God. We know Him from Revelation as the King of kings and the Lord of, of lords. In Hebrews, He is our great High Priest. In 1 Corinthians 5, our Passover Lamb. John 8, the light of the world. The book of Acts, He is the Lord of all. We could go on and on and on. All kinds of titles. And all of them, all of them are significant and reveal something about His character, about His nature. And the meanings in most of these cases, if not nearly all of them, is self-evident. You read it and it's evident what it means. Not so with this title that John uses, the Word. What does John mean by that? What does he mean when he says, when he calls Jesus Christ the Word? Well, it's translated from the Greek word logos. In the beginning was the logos, is what it says. And it might be helpful to know here that, that John is, is writing to both Jewish and, and Greek uh, listeners or readers. And for the Greeks, this word logos uh, had a, a particular meaning. For the Greeks, the logos was the starting point of all things. The supreme principle or force that brought order and stability and cohesiveness to the universe. The idea was first introduced by a Greek philosopher 
named Heraclitus, who lived in, in Ephesus about 600 B.C. And he's very famous for saying, you, you cannot step into the same river twice. You step in, you step out. When you step back in, that river that you stepped into is where? Down here. So what he, what he meant by that was that in all of life, there is this constant state of change that's taking place. His contemporaries rebutted him and said, well, if that's the case then, how come everything is not in a constant state of, of chaos? And Heraclitus' reply was, well, life is not in a state of chaos because the change that we see is not mere random change. It's ordered change. And that ordered change there must be, means there must be a, a principle or a force behind that order. And that force, according to Heraclitus and the Greek philosophers, that force that held all things together, that brought cohesiveness to the universe, was what? The Logos. Now, what about the Jews? Well, to the Jews, they, they had a similar, a somewhat different meaning. It was a bit more personal what Logos meant to them. You know, by 100 B.C., most Jews no longer spoke or even knew the Hebrew language. And so when the Old Testament Scripture in Hebrew was read in the synagogues, it became custom for somebody there who knew the Hebrew to give a running, not translation, but a running paraphrase. It wasn't word for word. It was actually kind of a running explanation of what was being Spoken because they wanted the people to know the Word. Not just hear it, but to know what was being said. And uh, so they would do this. And these, these running explanations eventually were written down, and they were known as Targums. T-A-R-G-U-M-S. And what the Targums revealed was that during the same time, when the Targums were being widely used, by the Jews, that they had already stopped speaking or writing the name of God. Because you never found it in the Targums. They were using substitute names. And the reason was is because they had a great reverence for God's name. They had learned their lesson in Babylon. And they were completely changed by this point and, and didn't want to take God's name in vain and violate the third commandment. So what they do is when they came to Yahweh, the name of God, and that was the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush when Moses said to him, who shall I say has sent me when he went down to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And God, tell them, God said, you tell them Yahweh sent you, the name of God. The self-existent one who makes and keeps covenant. That's what it means. Well, they stopped using that name and they would substitute Adonai, which meant Lord. They would substitute, um, they would simply say the name. Or you might have heard of this, Hashem. Or they would substitute the Holy One instead of saying Yahweh. And one more substitution, they would substitute Yahweh with the Word. Like in um, Exodus 19.17, um, Moses says this in our Bible. It says, Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. Now the targum of that reads, Moses led the people out to meet the Word of God. They substituted Word of God for Yahweh. 
It was quite common practice to do this. And so for the Jew, the Logos was what? A name of God. So, when John sits down to write his Gospel, the Holy Spirit guides him to introduce Jesus not with a genealogy, but with a new title never before used. That title was Logos. And with it, John says to the Jews that this Logos is not only the name of God, but God Himself who has entered the human race in flesh, in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth is the Logos. Likewise, John says to to the Greeks, he says, the Logos, it's not a principle or just a force, but a living being. Who is the source of all life and the light of all mankind? He says to the Greeks, the very thing that you have been pondering about and writing about all of these years, the force, the power, the principle that holds the universe together in continuity has come to earth as a man and we have beheld Him and we have seen His glory. Now, here's one more thing that we can take away from Logos. When the Holy Spirit guides John to use the term Logos, the Word, to reveal Jesus Christ, He is telling us that it is within the very nature of God to reveal Himself. See, a person's Word is the means by which they make themselves known to others. You can know a lot about a person by observation, of course. You can observe their mannerisms, facial expressions, habits, clothing, all kinds of stuff. But you can't really know them until they speak. You can't really know them until you hear their Word. The same is true with God. You can know about Him by observation of what you see in the natural creation around us. You can know about Him by the lives of those He has changed. You can know about Him by observation, but you can't really know Him apart from the Logos. You can't really know God apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revelation of God. The way to know God. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way. No one goes to the Father. No one comes to know the Father except through Me. And that's why so many people come to believe when they read the Gospels. Because the Gospels, they reveal Jesus. And Jesus is the Logos of God. Jesus is the Logos of God. You can know about God by reading the Old Testament. But when you read the Gospels, you begin to know Him through the living Word, through the Logos of God, through the person of Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And, second point, the Word was with God. Now that word with, it's translated from a Greek preposition that means in close proximity to or alongside of so the word the son of god was alongside god and although john doesn't tell us here we do know from the rest of the new testament that the word god here means or implies god the father and god the holy spirit so in the beginning 
A lot of times, just let me say this, when people think God, they think Father. You shouldn't do that. When the word God is spoken, it's talking about the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when the Logos was with God, it meant this, the Son of God was with or alongside God the Holy Spirit and God the Father. And so there's a subtle revelation here of the Trinity, the triune God. It's also a subtle affirmation of Christ's distinctiveness within the Trinity or within the Godhead. The Word was in closest possible connection with the Father and the Spirit, but yet distinct from the Father and the Spirit. The Word was with God. In other words, in the Trinity, we have one God in essence, but three in persons. One in unity, three in distinctiveness. And that's why it says that Jesus here, the Word of God, was with God. If I said Bob was with Bill, we're not talking about one person, are we? We're talking about two distinct persons in the same way. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Godhead, is distinct from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, but co-equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see in the third phrase, the Word was God. Let me read it from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And so that final phrase, and the Word was God, is a declaration that Jesus is fully divine. And that means everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. In Jesus dwells all the wisdom and glory and power and love and goodness and truth that is found in the Father. There are one in essence. In Him, God the Father makes Himself known. Uh, Colossians 2.9 In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. John reemphasizes that by summarizing. He was with God in the beginning. And then adds one more thing to demonstrate the divinity of the Word, Jesus Christ. And that is, verse 3, He created all things. There's nothing that exists that does not exist apart from Him. All right, summary now. The Word was in the beginning. That speaks of His eternal nature. The Word was with God. Part of the Godhead, but distinct from the Father and the Spirit. The Word was God, co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. And that God became flesh. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, that word dwelling is interesting. There's over a half dozen Greek words that could be translated into the English word dwelling. And each one has a particular nuance. The one the Holy Spirit here directs John to use to translate dwell is skenao. It's the Greek word skenao. And here's what it means. To pitch a tent. Now out of all the words dwell, why that? There are a lot of different words. I won't go into all of them and all the nuances of them, but this one in particular is used here. In fact, the noun form of this word is used almost exclusively in the New Testament uh, 
to describe or the tabernacle, particularly the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. What's the Holy Spirit doing through John here? He's tying two things together here. The Word becoming flesh and the tabernacle in the wilderness. That was the tabernacle of Moses that God instituted after the children of Israel were delivered out of Egyptian slavery through the Red Sea down into the desert to the base of a mountain called Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And it was there at the base of Sinai the people camped and from there God called Moses up the mountain into the glory of God on top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and the law that was to govern all aspects of the Israelites' life. And during one encounter with God on the holy mountain, Moses, in this, this great desire to know God more, says what? He says, show me your glory. Show me your face, God. I want to know you more. And in essence, God said back, in a little paraphrase here, a little liberty, I can't show you or it'll kill you. In your sinful state, you cannot survive my holiness. Moses says, well, how will I and your people ever come to know you, Lord? God says, here's how. Build a tabernacle. And then he gives the plans to Moses for this tabernacle, for the priesthood that was to operate in it, and the sacrifices the priests were to make on behalf of the people. Here's kind of what it looked like. It was a mobile tent-like structure with three parts. And if you've been coming for any amount of time, you know about two years ago, we did a big study on this, so that picture probably looks familiar. It was a mobile tent-like structure with three parts, an outer courtyard, that's the fence. Um, then there was a, in the middle of the courtyard, I'm not going to go into all the furniture, but in the middle of the courtyard was a, a large tent called the Holy Place, and the back third of that tent was partitioned off with a huge curtain, very thick, big curtain, and behind that was called the most holy place. And in that most holy place, there was a piece of furniture. There was a box. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And that box had on top of it a lid or what is better known as a covering covered over the top. And that covering was known as the mercy seat. And over the top of the mercy seat, God said, there, now listen, is where I will dwell with you tabernacle with you and over that same covering once a year the day of atonement Yom Kippur the high priest would enter in only he could go in only once a year and he would offer the blood of a spotless lamb over the top of that mercy seat and that blood would run on that that covering that covered over what inside the box was the law, the tablets of God. And that, that law had been broken many, many times by the people that year. But what that blood does, it came in and it covered over the broken law to make atonement for the people. So God answered Moses. And he said this, he said, you cannot see my glory, but you and my people can know me in a veiled way through the tabernacle. Remember the veil hung down separating the Holy of Holies. You can know me in a veiled way 
through the tabernacle, overseen by the priesthood, who will come to Me. You can't come to Me. They'll have to do it for you. Who will come to Me on your behalf to make sacrifices to atone for your sin. Now, when John says, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, it means that this tabernacle is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It means that tabernacle was made and was constructed primarily to be a symbol, to be a sign, to be a painting of what was to come in God's plan. So that when the epitome of God's plan, the Son of God in human flesh came, they would recognize Him and they would know what He has done. It was a picture proclaiming Jesus Christ. So the tabernacle has come to us in a person. The God who dwelled over the Ark of the Covenant came to dwell among us in Jesus Christ and the glory that could not be seen without dying now has come to give us the opposite, eternal life through Jesus Christ. John says we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God said, let God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis 1. Made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in what? The face of Jesus Christ. Remember what Moses said? Show me your face. He said, you can't. But now we can. Moses said, God showed me your face. Ultimately, God revealed His face in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle of God. He is the ultimate place to meet with God. He is the temple of God. And to emphasize that truth later on in His ministry, over in chapter 3 of John, He's standing one day in Jerusalem by the temple and He says to the religious leaders, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And they thought, what are you talking about? This took decades to build this thing. How can you say you would rebuild it in three days? What is He saying? He's saying that temple is a type of Me, right? Just like the tabernacle was. The temple was the permanent tabernacle. And it speaks of Me. It's to communicate Me. It's to tell you about Me. Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle of God. And He says, through My death and resurrection, three days later, I'll raise up this thing. I'll raise up this temple. What was He talking about? His own body. What was He saying? Through Me, you're going to be able to enter in to that most holy place. Through my death and resurrection, you'll finally be able to get in. And not only that, later on in John, Jesus reveals not only is He the way for us to get in the most holy place, He is the means by which the most holy place comes into us. He says concerning the Spirit, He says, if you believe in Me, the Father and I will come and make our abode, our home in you. Now this is what makes Christianity unique from any other belief system or any other religion. And I use that word religion loosely. Because it has been used for you know, what you do to appease God and, and earn God's favor so you can a, a place in heaven. And, and, and if, if that's the definition, well then Christianity is absolutely not a religion. In fact, in the first century, it was called a non-religion. It really was. 
They called it a non-religion. Why was that? Well, in every ancient religion, you had three things. You had a temple, you had a priesthood, and you had sacrifices. Don't you imagine for a moment this, this uh, first century Gentile gets saved, right? And he's in a conversation witnessing to his neighbor, and he's telling him about conversion. And the pagan neighbor questions one of the first questions. Well, you temple. Jesus is our temple. He's where we meet God. He's well, if you don't have a temple, where do your priests offer sacrifices to? And the Christian would say, what? Well, we don't have any priests. Why? Well, because Jesus has become our great high priest. Well, well, then, who offers the sacrifice to, to appease your God? The Christian would answer, we don't have any sacrifices. Because Jesus is the last and final sacrifice of God who once and for all satisfy God through His death on the cross and His resurrection for the of our sins. He is God's Lamb. And through Him, we have favor with God forever and ever. So you see, Jesus is the temple or the tabernacle of God. And through Him, we meet with God. Jesus is the great high priest. And through Him, we have access to God. And Jesus is the Lamb of God. And through Him, we have the forgiveness of sin and favor with God forever and ever and ever. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's what makes Christianity so great. It's what makes Jesus so great. And it's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is not primarily about a birth. It's about an incarnation. The incarnation of the Son of God. And that incarnation implies three things that I want to share with you this morning. The first one is this. The incarnation means that we can know God. Now, I don't mean know about. I mean really know God. Because why? Well, here's the picture. He's no longer inaccessible in the holy place, the most holy place, right? He's no longer behind a veil. John says the eternal Word tabernacled in a human body, and because of that, we can know God. In the Gospels, we can actually see God's love, God's humility, God's wisdom, God's compassion, God's righteousness, God's grace and mercy. We can know what God is like. And listen, what God has always been like. A lot of people get the idea that you have God in the Old Testament and then Jesus changed Him. I don't have time to get in that nonsense. But Jesus shows us what God has always been like. He said, I'm the same today, yesterday, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. Or whatever. Get my tenses mixed up. Jesus said this, he goes, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yeah. But the incarnation also says, not only can we really know God, but we can know him personally. We can know him deeply. We can know him closely. We can know him intimately. I think a lot of people stop short of this in their walk with God. We can really, really know Him in the terms of not only a relationship that saves, but a fellowship we can savor. 
You get that? That we can enjoy, that we can taste, that we can experience, that we can savor. At Mount Sinai, the Israelites, they had to stand back from the mountain. You, you know the mountain, if you go back and read it in Exodus, this, God comes down on this mountain and there's this, this, and this is a huge mountain, by the way. This is no small hill. And he comes down, and then all around it is desert. So it kind of just rises huge before the people. It's not like in a mountain range. And God comes down, and there is, and there is smoke, dark smoke, and, and clouds. It's ominous. There's fire. There's lightnings. There's the mountain shaking. The people are freaking out at the base of the mountain, and they have to erect a fence so the people don't get too close and die. Then when the tabernacle was con constructed, not long afterwards, only the high priest could come close to God, could enter the presence of God in the most holy place which was concealed by this large curtain. And then when the tabernacle, which was mobile, was finally made permanent by Solomon in Jerusalem, it was called the temple. That curtain that shielded the most holy place was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 4 inches thick. It weighed thousands of pounds. And by its very size, it proclaimed, you cannot come in here. But when Jesus died for our sins on the cross, Mark 15 tells us that that curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was supernaturally torn from the top all the way to the bottom. And Hebrews 10 tells us that curtain represents His body which was torn or sacrificed for us on the cross. And through that, through His blood and the torn veil of His body, we can now what? Enter the most holy place. And Hebrews says, not only enter, but enter with confidence. We can with confidence draw near to God because Jesus is our great High Priest. The Incarnation says this. It says that God went to infinite lengths to draw near to you. To get close to you. So you could draw near to Him and get close to Him. And He paid an infinite price. Jesus laid down His glory in order to give up His life so you could know God and be close to God. Now, what are we going to do with that? What do we do with that? Well, I'll tell you one thing that you don't do, that you cannot do, and that's halfway follow Jesus. You can't do it. You can't have integrity and do that. The incarnation's too great. It's too great. It's too breathtaking. It's too humbling. It would be totally irrational as well as ungrateful to give less than all of yourself to someone who is given beyond measure, who is given infinitely for you. No Christian, no Christian would disagree with that. But here's the problem. We do, at times, give Him less than all of ourselves. We do, at times, follow Him half-heartedly. And that is a paradox that all genuine believers hate! Exclamation point. Look, if, if you're unaware of or you can't see your, your moments, your seasons of half-heartedness or it doesn't bother you, 
it is likely that you have adopted Christianity as your religion of choice, but you've yet to experience conversion or the new birth or being born again. Because you know what? Let me just, conversion changes you. There's going to be change. It may be slow. It may take a while, but there's change. Jesus can't show up and not change you. Period. He can't. There's going to be change. And when that happens, you begin to, and again, this is a different story how this happens in every person, but you begin to love what God loves, and you know what that also means? You begin to hate what God hates. And one of the signs of being a genuine believer, a growing believer, is that you're honest about and you hate the moments in your life where you do not fully love and obey the Lord. And all born-again believers suffer under this. We all do. As did the Apostle Paul. You know what he said about it? I don't understand what I do. For, I want, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I what I, what I, Paul hated his lack of love for the Word. Why? Well, because the Word was made flesh, became one of us, dwelt among us, died to redeem us from sin and hell because the Word was made flesh to reconcile us to the Father, justify us as righteous, adopt us as children, and share with us His eternal glorious inheritance. That's why I hated it. Yeah, but here's the good news. This is in spite of our moments of half-heartedness, God's heart for us remains steadfast. His love for us never changes. Look at He loved us while we were still sinners. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And He certainly then loves us now that we're His children. In fact, He said, nothing will ever separate you from My love in Romans 8. And He'll love us throughout all eternity. He does not relate to us on the basis of our devotion. Thank God! He relates to us on the basis of His faithfulness to His covenant He made with His Son on a cross 2,000 years ago. And if we are faithless, 2 Timothy, He remains because He cannot deny Himself. That's a rock. We sing a song, or I forget what it is around here, but one of the lines is, my confidence is your faithfulness. In the incarnation, God has gone to infinite lengths to come close to us. Now we must be willing to go to great lengths to get close to Him. It's our only reasonable response. That's what Romans 12 says. In view of this mercy, in view of this great mercy, including the incarnation, what should we do? Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is the most logical and rational thing that you can do in light of this incarnation, this death, and this resurrection on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5 says we should respond by saying, I am not going to live for myself anymore, but for Him who died for me. Now look, some of you know there are things going on in your life that are keeping you from being close to the Lord. He doesn't love you any less. You've got to know that. But your lack of love for Him needs repentance. That's why you're 
not feeling close to Him. You say, I love the Lord. Okay, Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. He doesn't say, if you love Me, keep My commandments. He says, if you love Me, you'll be keeping them. Because why? Because you love Me. You're not proving your love. It's an outflow of your love for Me. It's an outflow. And when you don't, and we all don't, at times, when you don't keep His commands, like love one another as I've loved you. I'm sure you've broken that one a few times. I'm just guessing. When you do that, what do you do? You repent, right? Because why? He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all and right. He'll always be faithful, right? And He'll always be just. And what does just mean? He, God won't judge the same sin twice. If it was judged in Jesus, it will never be judged on you. Jesus bore all of our sins on the cross. That's why He said, it is finished. We're acknowledging that when we confess it to Him. 1 John 1.9. And when we confess it, He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, some of you, you're not, you're not caught up in overt sin. But you're, not, you're just not taking the time to learn how to draw near to Him. How to draw near to Him in prayer. How to draw near to Him in the Word. You've got to realize the incarnation wasn't just to get you saved. It's to get you to a place of fellowship with God. Regular fellowship. Enjoying God. Fellowshipping with God. Being close to God. You're not doing that though. And that's why you're not close to God. Not as close as you could be. Here, the incarnation just begs us. It begs us to draw close to God. He said, he, I have done everything for you. You know what it also does? It begs us to understand that God wants to draw close to us. James says it. Draw near to God or come close to God and He will come close to you. Jesus spilled His blood not only for the forgiveness of sins, but closeness with God. It's available. I encourage you. Set a time. Set a place. Set a time. Set a place. Man does not live by bread alone. But on every word that proceeds out of mouth, eat your bread daily. I don't care if it's a five-minute meal or a three-hour meal. Eat your bread daily. Then pray about the bread you just ate. Secondly, the incarnation means that, that God knows us. Not only that we can know God, but definitively, God knows us. You know, it would have been amazing if the Son of God just came to temporarily live among us and leave us a set of teachings to follow and then just went back to heaven. But He did infinitely more than that, right? He came, became one of us, and therefore, He knows from a human perspective what it's like to be human. You know, God knows us. Of course, He's omniscient, right? In His deity, He knows all things. But as a man, because He came, became one of us, He knows from a human perspective what it's like to be one of us. And that's a great comfort to know that, that God experienced 
human nature and a human body and human living. He knows. Not just out of his omniscience, but out of his personal experience in the incarnation. That's a great comfort to us, is not most notably in in our temptations and in our trials and in, in our sufferings. Hebrews 2 says this, for this reason, he, this is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way. That's the incarnation. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for our sins, for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is what? Able to help those who are being tempted. See, he would be able as God. He would be able in his omnipotence, but there's another able this is talking about. A much more relatable able. Let me explain. When you're, you know, when you're, when you're happy, things are going well in your life, you know, you feel pretty connected to the people in your life. But when something happens that involves real suffering, you will inevitably feel alone. And while the comfort of those others around you is beneficial and it's needed, it does not always completely alleviate the isolation of deep suffering. And then one day, providentially, somebody comes along your path that has gone through the very same thing that you have. They've overcome the same temptation. They have endured the same suffering. And it seems like when you speak to them that they're able to understand you in a way and encourage you and comfort you like nobody else can. And it, yeah, and it, it causes you just to want to open up your heart to them. Because what? Here's someone who gets it. I appreciate everybody else, but this person seems to be able to comfort me even more. Why? Because they've been through it. There was a, ni- there was a movie in the 90s called The Doctor. Well, you know, if you remember that, if you weren't around in 1990, but it was a good movie. <laughs> I remember it. Starred William Hurt, and um, he he played a doctor. It was really based on the real life story of this doctor named Rosenbaum, and uh, and it was based upon his book. He wrote an autobiography entitled "A Taste of My Own Medicine When the Doctor Becomes a Patient." Anyway, the, in the movie, the doctor is this successful, wealthy, indifferent man who has little compassion for his own parents, let alone his patients, until the tables are turned, literally. He is diagnosed with throat cancer and the chemo doesn't work. Now instead of standing over the operating table, he's on it. And it completely changes him. And that's what the movie's about. He begins to empathize with and comfort his fellow chemo patients. He starts going around the hospital correcting everything, uh, and, and, and turning it into a place that actually treated patients well. He became an advocate for, for patients and how they were handled, how they were treated, and how they were spoken to. And of course, the point of the whole thing is, is you really never know what someone is facing until you go through it yourself. And when you do, there is a sense in which you become more qualified to help others go through the same thing. Now, In an infinitely greater way, Jesus is qualified to help us. Why Hebrews 2? Because He Himself suffered when He was tempted. He is able, qualified, to help those who are being tempted in their doubt, in their weariness, in their struggle. He is what? I've been there. I know. The incarnation of the eternal Word of God, the Son of God, In it, he faced every kind of human trial. 
Every temptation, every suffering. He not only became a human being, but a human being who was born in a feeding trough. A human being that before his first birthday, birthday was facing uh, uh, life-threatening persecution from government authorities. A, a, a human being who knew poverty, deep poverty, who knew betrayal, who knew abandonment, who knew death. He experienced the weariness of disappointment, the loneliness of being misunderstood, the pain of being rejected. And therefore, he's able. He is able to empathize with us and help us, Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. But notice that phrase, just as we are. Look, whatever you've gone through, God has been through it. God has been through it. And that means whatever the reason for your suffering, you, you can be sure of this. It's not because He doesn't love you. It's not because He doesn't care for you. It's not because He just is remaining aloof and remote and distant. No, He came down and completely plunged Himself into the human condition. The Word was made flesh and from a human perspective that uniquely qualifies Him to help you. He is the one that we will pour our heart out to because why? He knows. The incarnation means that you can know God. It means that God uniquely knows you. And it also means that we absolutely must believe in Jesus Christ. You know, the incarnation says there's no other way to be saved. I mean, if there was another way other than, you know, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, then God would have done that. Why do all this? Why go to such drastic measures? Why does the infinite become finite? Why go to those such lengths, if you will? If there was another way, the incarnation and the cross would have been unnecessary. But they were necessary, weren't they? Hebrews again says in verse 17, for this reason, notice, He had. He had. Not just, it was a nice way to do it. It was one of the options. We chose this one. No, He had to be like, made like His brothers in every He had to be made completely human in order that He might make atonement for the sins of the people. So He could go to the cross. See, to make atonement for our sins, He had to be made like us in every way. That means He had to be able to die. He had to be able to die in order to become our substitute to bear the penalty of our sin on the cross. No other human being could become a substitute for the rest of us. Why? Because every other human being is what? A sinner. All have fallen short. All have sinned. Nobody else can be that substitute. Right? There's none righteous. No, not one. The only righteous being in the universe is God. But God can't die. God's eternal life. So God loved us so much that He became a man so He could die for us on the cross to bear the penalty our sin deserved. Take it on Himself. We could be saved. And because He had no sin in Himself, He didn't stay in that grave, but three rose again. And that was the validation of the effectiveness of His death for you. Of the effectiveness of the promise, I will forgive all of your sins. All who come unto Me, Jesus said. I will forgive. 
All who call upon the name of the Lord shall... The price has already been paid. But you have to redeem it. You have to take what He's done and say, I want this for me. I believe that. That's what it means to become a Christian. You believe that. There's a moment of faith where you say, I believe Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again. If you've never done that, what a morning to do it. You've heard the Gospel explained about five ways this morning. <laughs> and maybe if you thought for a while you have believed, but you know, you go, I don't hate sin. I don't find myself hating what I'm doing because I know it's displeasing to God. Maybe you've adopted a religion, but you've never really believed in the Savior. It's a moment of simple faith. It's just taking a step. I believe. I understand I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and I believe in Him. I want to lead you in a prayer if you've never prayed that. Actually, a confession, not a prayer. I want to make a declaration of faith this morning for those of you who have believed. Make it with me if you've never believed in Jesus. You know you're doing it right now. Really? Do you know you're doing it right now? You're going, I, I believe that. Let's put it into words though. Because you believe in the heart, Romans 10 says. But with your mouth you confess that your salvation. So let's believe. Let's confess this one. I believe, I believe. In, Jesus in Jesus Christ that He died on the cross died. for my sin. That He rose again to make me right with God. I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in what He has done. Not in what I have done. In what He has done. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. All right, well, let's stand. Stand up. I can't believe I'm letting you out early. Sit back down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Father, thank You this morning for Your Word. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for Your Son, the Logos. Thank You for all that implies in our lives and help us to apply that to our lives. We want to be near. We want to be close. Thank You, You made a way. Because the Logos tabernacled among us. Hallelujah. Mm, we can be close. We can be close to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'd like our prayer team to come up. If you need prayer this morning, we'll be up here after the service. Just come on up within the first 10 or 15 minutes. Everyone else, have a great Sunday. If you can hang around and fellowship, do so. Grab a coffee, get a smoothie. If not, safe travels. So oh.